Welcome to the Grace at a Glance podcast from Grace Church of Linnets and Grace Creative. We are a Jesus church where the gospel is central, where we love Jesus, build people, and lead revival. Thanks for joining us. ago, I saw something that I didn't think I'd ever see again. I saw as I pulled up to the light, uh, to the right of the car to my left, the stoplight, there sitting in the passenger seat was somebody with a gigantic book that was called the Rand McNally Atlas. For some of you in this room, you have no idea what I'm talking about. For others of you, you're laughing because that's how everybody used to navigate, right? You'd have your navigator. If you were in the car by yourself, the map was spread out to the right, and you're trying to figure out as you're driving where it is you're supposed to be going. Well, road maps are important. Today, we have them on our phones with a voice that we can customize that tells us when to make left, right turns, etc., etc. But it's really important to have a map, a layout of what it is you're looking at so that you can make sense of where you're at and where you're going. And that's kind of what the earliest chapters of the book of Hebrews are about. Especially if you read Hebrews 1, which was referenced earlier in our call to worship and which we looked at last week, what you're going to find is a basic roadmap of why Jesus is better. And especially as he comes to chapter 2, why Jesus is better than angels and his warning that we should not drift away. So up on the screen is a map for you, a map of what we talked about last week, but also a map of kind of the entire picture of what the author is going to be talking about in the book of Hebrews is why Jesus is better. And so to the left on the top, you'll see the line in the middle that distinguishes heaven from earth, and you'll see that he's first going to talk about the son through whom creation was made. All of the universe made by the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is the expression of God's image. He was the one who built all of the universe that we're in and and created it on behalf of God's design. And it was angels who served him in heaven. As he sat on the throne as God Almighty, there in heaven the angels worshipped him. But the writer tells us that there was a day when Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. And he came to earth, entering this dimension from that dimension, entered the earth, and decided by God's plan to redeem the creation he had made that had been ruined by people. And so the story then of what Jesus did, he made purification for sins, he was made lower than the angels, he suffered death, and he was the author of salvation through his resurrection from the dead. And then the author of Hebrews is going to say, as the rest of the New Testament does, that after he finished his work here on earth, he ascended again back to heaven, and now he is the son through whom creation is ruled. So he made creation, he saved creation, and he rules creation. This is the basic roadmap of the book of Hebrews, and actually the entire New Testament. So if you were to say, 
well, it's just a bunch of stories, there's a bunch of books in the Bible. No, no, they all point to the same thing, and this is what they point to. This is the larger map. Jesus made it, Jesus saved it, and Jesus is in the process of regaining the rule over it. And so we're told, as we looked at last week, he's the heir of all things. He's seated at the right hand of God. He is superior to angels, and he is crowned with glory and honor. He rules not only because he had the power to create, he rules because he had the love to redeem. And your God, and the reason he's better is because your God doesn't force you to worship him because of his greater power. He invites you to worship him because of his greater love. Now, as we come to chapter 2, as is the case in the book of Hebrews, there's always in these great passages about Jesus being better, there's always attached to the back of each proclamation a warning. So what we're going to do this morning is to take a look at the warning that's attached to this idea that Jesus is better. It's a warning not to drift away. So I want to take a look at the passage that we're going to be looking at here, verses 1 through 5 of Hebrews 2. I should correct that. It says 1 through 4. 1 through 5. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. So there in chapter 1, he tells you why Jesus was better than the angels from eternity past, how Jesus made lower than the angels, redeems creation, and how ascending to heaven, he now rules over angels. And after this, he provides us a warning. There's going to be a number of warning passages in the books of Hebrews that are connected to the comments about Jesus being better. And so this morning, I want to show you why God puts a warning in chapter 2 for all of the people that he's telling that Jesus is better. First, this argument that Jesus is better is an argument from lesser to greater. So, what we're going to look at this morning is the author of Hebrews, in claiming that Jesus is better, is going to compare uh, what God did in life in the past. Remember that verse that was read this morning that we looked at last week, that in the past God spoke in various times and in ways? He's going to go to that, and he's going to say, look all that what God did. That's lesser than what Jesus did. So he's going to compare who were the messengers of the Old Covenant and who were the messengers of the New. And here's what we learned first. The Old Covenant law had messengers. Now, here are two passages that maybe you haven't spent a lot of time thinking about. But according to the New Testament, that when God gave the covenant to Moses on Mount Sinai, it was actually delivered from God through the agents called angels. 
Here's what Stephen says as he's being persecuted in Acts chapter 7. Moses was with our ancestors, the assembly of God's people in the wilderness. And when the angel spoke to him at Mount Sinai, and there Moses received life-giving words to pass on to us. The early church believed that when God appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai, the agents that delivered that word to Moses were angels. We have this repeated by the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3. Why then was the law given at all? So what is he comparing? He's comparing the Ten Commandments. That's his reference to the law. That's what Stephen's talking about when he talks about Moses. Who gave the Ten Commandments? To the people of God, Moses did. How did Moses receive them? From angels. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. So here's why the author of Hebrews is talking so much about angels. Number one, people are kind of fascinated with the idea of angels, right? You ever watched the show years ago, Touched by an Angel, right? It was, I mean, it was, a, it was a, a popular series. Back in this particular time, the Jews had an entire theology of angelic beings. They had a variety of uh, different levels of angelic beings in their theology, and they were wrapped up many times in their conversations in synagogues or whatever with who are angels. Maybe I saw an angel. Maybe an angel talked to me. Did an angel show up? And we see in the pages of the New Testament, there's a lot of stories about angels. Paul says that when Moses received the law, the mediator that he's talking about here in the passage is Moses. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. That would be Moses. So he's saying, look, at the magnificence of the law when it was given. There on Mount Sinai, God hides himself and just shows Moses his back. And then God has the law, writes the law, and the angels of God deliver it to Moses in the presence of God. And Moses on the mountain comes down, and he now is going to be the mediator, the person who represents God to the people, and the person who represents the people to God. Magnificent. The Bible says Mount Sinai was smoking and flaming and fire coming from it, and the people were terrified. In fact, they even put a fence of rocks around the bottom of Mount Sinai because it was so terrifying. The holiness of God in all of its majesty. And who were the messengers of that law given to Moses? The angels. But the writer of Hebrew says, when Jesus came and gave us the new covenant, which is, by the way, what we celebrated in communion this morning, right? As Pastor Dan uh, reflected with us on the blood. Jesus calls that blood his new covenant. What's the author of Hebrews talking about? The old covenant. And he says it was delivered by angelic messengers, but now he's going to compare it to something better, which is the new covenant, which had better messengers. Our faith in the new covenant was delivered to us by better messengers. You've heard the phrase, 
don't kill the messenger, right? That somebody in power or somebody somewhere delivers the message and it's easy to mistake the message and the messenger. But one of the arguments that the writer of Hebrews is going to tell you is your faith and Jesus is a better message because it has better messengers. And here's who the messengers were. First, Jesus, whom the passage there in Hebrews calls the Lord. You'll notice that the disciples, in their growing awareness of Christ, they didn't understand who he was at first, but as they grew in their awareness of Christ, eventually, towards the end of his earthly ministry, and then for sure, at the resurrection, you hear the voices of people like Thomas saying, my Lord and my God. In fact, Paul will write that we look forward to the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the Lord. So the very first best messenger was the Lord himself who came and talked about the good news of the kingdom of God. Secondly, he entrusted that message to faithful witnesses. Now in the Old Testament, the message was entrusted to angels through Moses. But in the New Testament, the message was trusted to people like you and me. And these are called better messengers because they watched the Lord work, they heard him speak, they saw his suffering, and they observed his resurrection from the dead. These messengers are better because whereas before God hid himself from Moses, and Moses could only see the backside of God, and the law had to be delivered through the angels, the author's argument is, for us, Jesus is the very face of God, and Jesus would say, if you've seen me, you've seen God. So he speaks, and it's better because he's actually seen when he delivers the message. And the people that deliver the message as witnesses actually see God too, something Moses never saw. So people like us, in fact, the Bible says, the final group of people to see Christ alive numbered 500 500 people saw Jesus alive after he was dead. Someday, you're going to get to join that company. Right? You walk by faith right now, not by sight. But there's a day coming when you will have sight. And that should excite you. Because there's a day coming when you're going to look on the face of Jesus Christ. And guess what? Just like every one of the other disciples who already have looked on his face, whether they be on earth as they were his disciples or whether they've graduated to heaven and they're seeing his face now. With all of those folks, you too are going to look into the face of your Savior and see his face, and then what's going to happen to you? You will become like him, for you shall see him as he is. No more guessing what Jesus looks like. Right, right now all we have are artist paintings. Don't you wish that the cell phone had been made back in Jesus' day? Here's Jesus taking a selfie with his disciples. We walk by faith, not by sight, because we have the testimony of the Lord Jesus himself, the deposit of the witnesses in our life as they wrote the scriptures and as they talked about what they saw and heard and what Jesus did and said. And then God says, an even better witness also was God himself who showed up on the day of Pentecost, which was a Jewish feast day, 
and the Holy Spirit fell from heaven, and God deposited into the church of Jesus gifts, spiritual gifts inside of the people, and worked through them using signs, gifts, and wonders. That was a better witness. Because when the people did something miraculous, using the spiritual gifts and the power that God had working through them, they could testify to whom? That the reason this is happening is because Jesus has united people with God. And he is the better covenant. So why was the covenant better? Because it had better messengers. Now, he also compares this. He compares the consequences of not listening to or obeying the covenant. And this is where the warning passage is going to come in. Hebrews 2, verse 2 says this. We just read it, but I want to repeat it. The message God delivered through angels has always stood firm. In other words, the law doesn't change. God gave these commandments. The Ten Commandments are still the Ten Commandments, not the Ten Suggestions. I know we live in a world that thinks otherwise. But what, Paul, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is the commandments were given, and they stand firm. It was the commandments that Jesus kept in order to fulfill the righteous requirements of God's law so that he could make himself an offering for sin. And here's what it also says. Every violation of the law... And every act of disobedience was punished. Now, when I was a kid, <clears throat> if I had done something wrong, this was back in the days when uh, punishment with uh, something other than taking a time out was the norm. And uh, in my household growing up, the punishment was my dad's belt. And lest you think that ruined me. <laughs> I can assure you it did not. It did, however, hurt, which was the intention of it. The intention of it was to make sure that the pain became a motivation not to break the law again, right? It, there, there's a reason for pain. I know you live in a world that doesn't think pain should ever exist. Get a headache, take two pills. Not feeling great? Run to the doctor. Make sure that everything is just never painful. And God says that if you're a child and you don't experience pain, you might end up experiencing greater pain. If your child runs out into the road and you don't discipline them because you don't want them to feel any pain, how are you going to feel if they run out into the road and get hit by the car? You weren't willing to give them lesser pain in order to help them avoid greater pain. You understand the principle? So when God says that disobedience was punished, it wasn't that he was just a mean God up in heaven just slapping people around who didn't do what he said. It's that God's law was given to create order and to create a sense of the discipline and the character necessary to walk in a fruitful relationship with God. So God disciplined with a little bit of pain so that they might avoid a greater amount of pain. Is that logical? It certainly is loving, right? The only way you're going to learn if you keep disobeying 
is that if you get punished, disciplined, so that you won't suffer something worse later. So this is basically the message. When the children of Israel disobeyed God, God would send them some discipline, some punishment. Why? So that they would repent and come back to God and walk with him the way God wanted them to. This wasn't about like in the Old Testament where God just wanted to punish people to make their lives miserable. God is not that way. But God does want his people to walk in obedience with him in the midst of his call to them to come to him. If you're struggling with sin, God wants you to turn from that sin and to turn to God, and he will receive you because of something called grace. Hey, that's the name of our church, isn't it? So let me tell you something about grace that our generations don't seem to want to hear. The reason it's called grace is because you receive something you don't deserve, and the flip side of grace is mercy, which is you don't receive what you do deserve. So here's the reality. There's no such thing as grace, and it has zero meaning at all. If it only operates in the context of, God, I just want you to be nice to me no matter what and how I live. Grace is given to sinners who have broken the law, and that's why, in some ways, grace is better than the law. Because when you broke the law, you had to have an animal sacrifice to cover your sin. When you've broken the law in the new covenant, you end up with the blood of Jesus Christ, a permanent sacrifice to remove your sin. And so the Bible says the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all unrighteousness, right? But here's the truth. When I was a kid, I got disciplined. I can remember doing this as I tried to run from it. And I also made an incredible number of promises I never kept. I promise never to do that again. I promise never to do that again. Now, I wasn't promising because I knew for sure I wasn't going to do it again. I was promising because I didn't want any more pain. Right? And my dad, I'm sure my dad hit himself more than he ever hit me as I was jumping around. I'm sure he did. And, uh, you know, it would have been a lot easier for me just to take the discipline and be done with it. It would have been a swat or two. Instead, I made it, well, more often than not, I made it a fiasco by my own unwillingness to receive discipline. And the Bible says nobody likes discipline. And when God disciplines, nobody likes it. And God doesn't want to discipline because he's mean. God wants to discipline because he loves you. And he wants to prevent greater tragedies in your life. And so when the author of Hebrews talks about this new covenant gospel, he wants to warn the people he's talking to. If the old covenant and people disobeyed it and didn't have grace... At that point in time, they had no offer of salvation from a Savior. And if their disobedience led to discipline and punishment, and if Jesus is better, and better messengers have delivered the new covenant, then the consequences are greater if you don't listen to the, what God says about Jesus. Now, here, who, here is who he's writing to. In fact, I kind of think that the entire letter of Hebrews 
is written by this person, whoever it is. We're not given his name because Jesus is better than the person who wrote it, right? We don't need to know the person's name. Why does he write the letter? What's his motivation for telling people Jesus is better? Here's why. The old covenant was built on moral law and tradition of Judaism. And what ended up happening so many times in that context was people made it so that if they obeyed the law, they would get God's blessing, and if they disobeyed the law, they would lose God's blessing. And, and over time, that morphed into a life of worrying about keeping the rules because you didn't want to get punished. Or it led to somebody saying, I can't keep the rules, and giving up. So now, he's writing to people who've been hanging around the message of Jesus for a while. And I don't know whether you've ever noticed this, the message, of, the message of the pure gospel of Jesus Christ and him alone as the only way of salvation is easily mixed in a mixed cocktail of grace plus works. In fact, one of the hardest things that is, there is to find in the true Christian faith, because the enemy of your soul works so hard against it, is to come to a place where you understand that the song you sang earlier, Jesus paid it all, right? Oh, that's the only thing I need. Many Christians don't believe that. They think they believe it, but their lives don't actually show it. They actually believe that it's Jesus who paid it all, and now they have to help Jesus out. That somehow... It's up to me to make sure that I do what Jesus wants me to do. While I'm still going to try to do it in my own strength, my own power, my own flesh, and I'm going to try hard to obey Jesus. You can't try hard to obey Jesus and expect to obey Jesus. You wonder why I know that's true? Because the Bible says that if you make anything a law, you will eventually break it. Now, don't raise your hand, but I'm going to raise mine. I can't tell you how many times I've rededicated and recommitted my life at church campfires or youth conferences or church services before I was a pastor. You want to know why I rededicated my life? Because I wasn't sinless. I wasn't. And I thought, what I really need, what I really need is to just try harder and do better. Only I would be frustrated because I could never get it to the way that I knew God demanded, which was perfect obedience. Then I had to interpret my actions. Am I pretty good most of the time? And I just mess up once in a while because I'm trying hard. Am I just a miserable person that's never going to get it? Because I've been trying pretty hard. And why is it that I have, when I make these decisions to rededicate my life, why is it that I'm really serious about it, but I can't seem to follow through on it at the level my heart longs for? You want to know why? Because nobody can keep the laws of God, old or new covenant, by works. You can only keep the new covenant by faith. Seriously, folks. God loves you 
and accepts you in Jesus Christ perfectly. When you fail, the blood of Jesus Christ has already paid for your sin, and all God is looking for you to do is to come and say, Lord, I acknowledge I'm not completely, fully like Jesus yet, but your blood, I know if I confess this sin, you're faithful and just to forgive me of my sin and to cleanse me from every unrighteousness. Now, Jesus, may my eyes be fixed on you. And by the way, it's the author of Hebrews who writes that. The author and finisher. Jesus didn't only save you to give you eternal life. Jesus continues to save you as you exercise your faith in him every day. Do you understand that when you sin, your faith is what saves you? Faith in the finished work of Christ and nothing else. You cannot trust that you have accepted Jesus and then come to church. You can't believe that you've accepted Jesus and gave an offering. You can't believe that you accepted Jesus and mostly you're charitable with your money. That's not what saves you. Tell me the name of your Savior. Who else? Nobody else. Not you. Not you. You are not your Savior. That's why the author of Hebrews is writing. Because there are people who are hanging around around the church here and back when he's writing this, and he's basically saying, here's what I'm concerned about for you. That you hang around the church, that you hear the teachings about Jesus, that you take those teachings and you mix it together with other things that you think, like being an American gets you right with God, or like my mom and dad were saved, so I must be saved. You integrate it, and as a result, you don't really have it. You think you have it, but you don't. That's what he's worried about. And that's why he keeps saying, Jesus is better than all of the old prophets in the law. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than the old sacrifice. Jesus is better than the offerings they made at the temple. Jesus is better than anything and everything else. In fact, he's the only. And if you're really going to have faith, what's your faith in? Who is your faith in? It's not Jesus plus you. It's not Jesus plus your circumstance. It's not Jesus plus your citizenship. It's just Jesus. Now, here's what his concern is. And this is the burden he carries. These people who are hanging around the church know the Bible. They're Jews for the most part. They've been taught all the way back in their bar mitzvah who, who God is and what his word is. They've heard all the Sunday school stories. They come to the place where the church is teaching the Bible. They're listening. They're hanging around stuff. But they're really not saved. They profess that they're Christians, but they do not possess Christ himself. And this is what he's worried about. And here's what he says. If all you have is a profession of Christ, you've got to be careful that you don't drift away because I, I can tell you this from my own personal experience watching people. They get disappointed with Christianity. And they begin to drift from it because they don't believe God answers prayer. 
They don't believe there's really any difference between Christians and non-Christians. They don't see the difference. They don't believe when, when stuff happens in their life that God must love them. And they begin, oh, they don't walk away from the Christian church building. They walk and drift away from God. Slowly, a little bit at a time. They would probably, if you asked them, still claim that they're Christians. But they don't possess Jesus. They simply have professed Christianity. And that's why he writes. And he says to them, now listen, if this has better messengers than that one, this one also has greater consequences than that one. Because if you miss this one, you miss the eternal life that God longs for you to have. And you end up in the place nobody wants to go. So give careful attention, he says, so that you do not drift away. Why do people drift away? They don't normally drift away from Jesus. They normally drift away from Christianity. And Christianity is not the same as Christ. You know, if you hang around long enough in the Christian church, or the Christian pastor, or if it's a different kind of structure, hierarchically, a Christian bishop, whomever, you are going to find out that they are imperfect. You're going to find out that they don't always make right decisions. You're going to find out that sometimes they get angry. You're going to find out that sometimes they just aren't as good as they long to be. You're going to find out that other Christians who you admire sometime will disappoint you. That's why the, he says you've got to keep your eyes on Jesus. Because if you don't keep your eyes on Jesus and you start getting your eyes on people or your circumstance or the life around you, the danger is not that you'll just get up one day and walk away from Christianity. The danger is, is that you'll just slowly drift away from having any real life inside of your person. You see, if you're just a professor and not a possessor of life, there's no life there to have. And if the only life you have is when you hang around people that actually have life in Christ, when you start drifting away and there's no resource internally for you, you don't have anything to rely upon. And he doesn't want you to be deceived that you possess Christ when maybe all you've ever done is profess Christianity. And that's why he creates the warning. Jesus is better. To deny Jesus is better. To look somewhere else for salvation brings greater consequence to your life. Close with this story. When my kids were little, we went to a beach in New Jersey. And uh, you know how they have flags up? And the flag was green. But there was a heavy wind that day. And as you looked at the water coming in, the water was coming in at an angle, and the wind was blowing a certain way. And we set up our little thing on the beach, and we had a little umbrella and, uh, that we put you know, our food under, and we were all trying to get a little bit of shade from occasionally. And the kids, man, they, down to the water they go, like kids do. Well, here's what happened. As the waves kept coming in, as the wind kept blowing, without them realizing it, with my umbrella here, as they're playing, they're no longer there anymore in front of the umbrella. 
the waves and the wind are moving them down the shoreline. And I watched them. I was watching this happen. And I remember very distinctly, and I forget which boy it was, but I remember distinctly that one of the boys decided he wanted to look up to make sure that we were still there. And when he looked up, we were not there. I could see him in the distance. And I'll never forget the look on his face when he realized, I thought I was here, but I'm actually over here, and I actually don't know where I'm at. That's what the author says. Pay careful attention that you don't drift away. Jesus is better, and Jesus is only. And now it is by faith from first to last, God says in his word in the book of Romans. The answer for you, dear Christian, is not that you try harder, but that you call out to God to increase your faith. For without faith, it's impossible to please God. And you know what? If your faith is increased, your obedience will follow. So, dear friend, here's the warning for us from the passage. Jesus is better. But to reject him or to trust in yourself rather than him, to put yourself in a place where you think you have him but don't, is a dangerous place to be. Don't make the mistake of thinking you have Christ when you really don't. Jesus, thank you for your word, and thank you for the warnings of your word. If the old covenant people did not escape punishment when they disobeyed, how shall we escape so great salvation if we do not obey by faith the message of Jesus? So friend, you might be sitting here this morning, keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. And you may, you, you may have not given your spiritual heart much attention lately. Maybe you just have been lukewarm. Maybe you just, not, you just are going through motions. Maybe there's no passion in your heart for the Lord Jesus at all. Maybe, the, maybe in your life right now, there's just not the kind of passion that, that, that ought to be evident in the heart of a believer. So, the Bible says we should search our hearts to see if we're in the faith. And so I want to give you that moment right now. Will you search your heart to see if you're in the faith? Can you remember that you, on that first day of salvation, trusted in Jesus alone? Have you now mixed that with something else? Repent. Come back to your Savior. Come back to the one who saves Quit trying in your flesh to obey and please him. Rather, by faith, please him, and the obedience of your life will follow. People that love Jesus by faith want to please him in all that they do. Jesus is better than angels. Now listen, don't drift away and miss such great salvation. Pray this prayer. Jesus, I come to you. I trust that you alone are my Savior. I call out to you. I rest only in your finished work at Calvary for my salvation. I'm not going to interpret my life anymore on the basis of what I do, but on the basis of what you have done and what you are doing. Give me victory in my life to fall in love with you deeply as I realize 
the sin from which I've been forgiven, the folly of trying to work my way to salvation, and I repent of any pride in my life which may have caused me to move away from the only message that matters and the only person who can save me. Dear Jesus, here I am in front of you. I bow my knee to you. I invite you to be my Savior. Save me, and I trust you alone to do it. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've prayed that prayer, would you tell me by writing on the yes card in front of you that you made that decision for Christ? We want to be able to pray for you in the future. Pay careful attention that you don't drift away. We won't escape if we neglect so great salvation. Hosting for this podcast has been brought to you by Anchor from Spotify. Our intro and outro song is Creative Mind by Ben Sound. From all of us here at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.